read our scripture passage this morning, and then uh, we'll just take a moment to pause um, and to invite God to speak to us, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. So Mark, if you're new to the Bible, it's been a while, just kind of turn to the right. It's the second um, of the gospel narrative accounts. Um, If you hit Luke, you've gone too far. Hear these words, short, short passage this morning, three verses, Mark chapter one, verse one, and then verses 14 and 15. Mark writes this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment. And again, we at Soma, if you're new, we believe that God is living and active in his world, that he's given us his Holy Spirit to speak to us. He's our father who longs for us to hear his words, to kind of unclog our ears, our eyes, our imagination, our hearts, our bodies, and to receive his good words as words of life and flourishing for us. And so I want to invite you just to take a moment to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. May you breathe out your cares and your concerns and your worries and ask God, your Father, to speak to you this morning, and then I'll pray for us here in just a moment. Father, as we silence, attempt to silence ourselves and to silence our minds, our hearts, our bodies, we're reminded of how noisy our lives are, how cluttered our hearts and souls and bodies become in a world in which everyone and everything is clamoring for our attention, voices that are crying out, in the wilderness to bring us good news. And yet, God, you are the one who, Mark says, brings good news. So God, would you help us to hear this good news? Would you help us to, as as Mark says, to repent, to rethink everything about our lives, to trust you for the fullness of our existence and to find there eternal life, not just for the future, but for right now. Help us, God, we cannot do this work on our own. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if the last year has revealed anything, the last 18 months, is that underneath kind of all the superficial diagnosis of what's happening right now that we see on television that maybe gets brought into us through our social media feeds, underneath all of that, I think we see this deep hunger for transformation. People want the world to be different, and they don't like the way that the world is, and that is expressed as anger, as outrage, as sadness and depression and melancholy and malaise and anxiety. But underneath, there is this hunger for transformation. And yet also, there's uh, an utter confusion about what actual change looks like, what transformation looks like, and how transformation happens. Everybody has an idea about how transformation is supposed to happen, and they're happy to tell us if we just get a new president, if we just get uh, a new uh, head of healthcare, if we just whatever. Like, everybody has their opinions about what things are supposed to look like and how we get there, but there's so much confusion, so many competing voices. And what's sad, what's kind of been revealed to me as a pastor, as one who professionally like looks at this stuff and is trying to be helpful, hopefully to you guys, uh, is that the church has been no different. We are just as confused. We are just as divided. We are just as polarized. We are just as angry and outraged as everyone else. And when I look at what's happening around us in the name of Jesus, oftentimes, what it struck, what it struck me, and the reason we want to teach this series is that it struck me that the big failure um, that the church is facing and kind of the reckoning we are experiencing right now and this, what some people have called the great reset of the church, um, is really just a failure of discipleship. 
it is a failure of imagination and a failure to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do and what he's invited us into as his disciples. Um, we have, in large measure, I think, apprenticed ourselves to the wrong voices. We have, the, the word disciple means an apprentice, right? A learner, one who attaches themselves to a person to learn their ways. We've attached ourselves to the wrong voices, to the wrong ideologies, to the wrong movements. And in many ways, we now lack credibility because we have compromised ourselves. I was reading, uh, I'm going to introduce you guys to one of my favorite uh, Kentuckians. And I was so sad a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with a group of guys for discipleship, and, uh, and I quoted Wendell Berry. And I was sad to know out of this group of like 10 guys, only one who took a Purdue agricultural ethics class knew who Wendell Berry was. So apparently IU is failing you, Butler is failing you, um, only Purdue is, is saving your souls in this way. But Wendell Berry is a poet, he's an essayist, an amazing writer, he's a farmer, um, he's still alive, he's like 90 years old or something, but um, he is one of my favorites. And here's what he says, and I thought it was so poignant for the moment that we find ourselves in. He says, a crowd whose discontent has risen no higher than the level of slogans is only a crowd. But a crowd that understands the reasons for its discontent and knows the remedies is a vital community, and it will have to be reckoned with. When we understand what's underneath our discontentment and we understand not only how to superficially diagnose it, but actually how to bring a remedy that offers a cure that leads us into a vision of the good life, now we're moving somewhere. Now we are a force that must be reckoned with in the world. And that's really what the heart of this series is, is for us to, to have a fresh encounter. We're calling this Encountering Jesus, to have a fresh encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed here and throughout his life, to bring good news into a world like ours, full of chaos, full of division, full of disillusionment. And so what we want to do is we're going to look at the, some narratives of people who encountered Jesus in surprising ways and, and, and how they were transformed and then how that transformation worked itself out in their lives. But before we do that, this first sermon, what I want to do is just simply talk about what it means to encounter Jesus. What is, who is Jesus and what is this good news and how does that change the way that we live? Because we all have conceptions. When I share the word gospel, you have a something that comes into your mind. When I, when I say gospel, when I say Jesus, there is something that is loaded up in your brain. And we often then live out of that. Dallas Willard, I'll come back to this later. But um, he famously said, he's a uh, kind of a spiritual formation writer, philosopher. And he famously said, what you present as the gospel is what you will present as discipleship, right? And I think that's profound. What you present as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what you will present as discipleship. And part of the problem is maybe we have presented a gospel that Jesus himself did not teach. And so what I want to do is look at that and make sure that we're all clear and on the same page and talk about this good news and what it means for our lives. So let's start by looking at the surprising good news that Jesus brought. Mark here invites us into Jesus's ministry. And I love the book of Mark. It's just action-packed. There's like very little teaching. It's like Jesus did this, and then he did this. Like the key word in Mark is immediately. You'll see that word like hundreds of times in the book of Mark. Immediately Jesus went here. Immediately he went here. It, he's, like, he's like bringing us like the sports center highlights of the Olympics, right? Like this happened, this person won gold, this person did this. Here's all the clips. And so he says, Jesus comes to Galilee, a nondescript hillbilly backwoods Kentucky-like town, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God. 
That word good news, which is the second time that Mark's used it here in the first 14 verses, is the word euangelion. Okay, Euangelion is the word from which we get evangelism. It is the word from which we get evangelical or evangelicalism. Okay, so that is the word euangelion. It just means good news. Now, what's interesting about this right here in Rome at this time is that the word euangelion was not a religious word. Right? We often think of this now gospel as a religious word used by, uh, and, and it kind of has political connotations. What's interesting is that it actually was a political word in Jesus's day, but it was mostly just a royal announcement about um, a new emperor ascending to the throne or a military victory that would bring peace to the world. And basically, um, a euangelion, when a, when a messenger or a preacher or an evangelist would come with that royal announcement, they would say something has happened and that something changes everything about your life. Everything from here forward is going to be different. This person is taking the throne and now all things are going to be different, but there's kind of a waiting period between when this victory happens and when you're going to experience the benefits of this. And so it introduces this tension of waiting for the reality, right? And that's, that's the most famous example of this is, uh, you know, take you back to like middle school or maybe uh, high school, college, whatever, was when Caesar Augustus became the uh, Caesar of the Roman Empire. If you remember the story, um, Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. Uh, the civil war broke out between Brutus and Cassius, a tu Brute, right? Um, his assassins and Octavian, uh, Caesar's adopted son and heir, and then Mark Antony, who was uh, kind of a, a, a collaborator with Octavian. He was a friend of Caesar's. And after they killed, after they avenged uh, Caesar's enemies, his assassins, they then turned on each other, Octavian and Mark Antony, and a battle was fought for the sole control of the Roman Empire. It was a famous sea battle, right? Octavian wins, and he's later crowned Caesar Augustus. And then evangelists are sent out through the entire Roman Empire with a euangelion, with good news, a royal announcement. Octavian has won, right? This is good news for everyone. Something happened. The civil war is now over. And now there's going to be peace. There's going to be justice. There's going to be prosperity at hand because, this is really interesting, Caesar is curios. He's Lord. Caesar Augustus is the son of God. Caesar Augustus is savior of the world. This is the language that would have been inscribed on the coins that people paid their taxes with. He is the prince of peace. Now, if all that sounds familiar, it should sound familiar because those are the very words that Jesus and the earliest Christian writers used to describe Jesus himself. It was a subversive thing to say, Jesus is Kyrios, Jesus is Son of God, Jesus is Prince of Peace. It's not just something like you put on a Hallmark card or like a coffee cup that's supposed to be like a slogan. This is a subversive political act of sedition, saying Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Now, imagine you were a friend of Julius Caesar's, and you were waiting anxiously for that news. And you hear the good news that Octavian has won. Everything's going to be different. Your life is completely changed. If Mark Antony wins, that's bad news for you. But if Octavian wins, it's good news. And now everything about your life, your business, right? Like your ability to make money, your, ability, your family life, your, your political life, your religious life in the temple, all is different now because Octavian has won. If you were a supporter of Antony and you heard the news that Octavian won, you were called to repent, right? You were called to rethink your life, 
and to believe or to trust this good news about Octavian or else you would be now, when Jesus and the earliest Christians used the word gospel, and they used the word euangelion, they used it in a similar way. Something has happened. Jesus Christ has come into the world. Jesus of Nazareth came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. And this was just as surprising then to them as it was to us. Something has happened within this larger story of God's purposes in the world. And because of this, everything in your life is going to be different. Everything is now full of hope for your future, and you're in this tension of waiting for Jesus' first coming and the second coming when Jesus brings his kingdom in fullness. And so he goes on to talk about, um, you know, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. He goes on to unpack what is this good news? What is it actually that has happened that should be good news for us? And the key to understanding this gospel of Jesus, the gospel he preached, is to understand the backstory, right? Um, my kids, uh, my boys have been begging me for months to watch this cr- the craziest movie I've ever, other than maybe like Inception. It's another one of Christopher Nolan's movies. Uh, uh, it's called Tenet. So we watch Tenet, and it is like the crazy, I, I still don't really understand what happened. I know that like the future was attacking the present, and I'm not like a physics guy, but there was something about like negative entropy. It's weird. It's like mind-bending. It's what Nolan always does, right? He just plays with time. And it's like sometimes you're in the present, but it's really the past. And sometimes you're in the present, but it's the future and the past. And then the movie ends and I, I, the guy walks back in the helicopter and something happened, right? Something, something crazy. But like, can you imagine walking into Tenet or walking into Inception like halfway through the movie and trying to understand it, right? It's crazy. It's the same thing happens with the story of the gospel. We walk into the movie halfway through and we're confused because we don't understand the beginning and we don't understand the ending. And we have this little fragment of this clip. It's like a trailer, but we haven't seen the whole movie. And that's what uh, Mark is trying to do is to invite us to understand. What Jesus wants us to understand is the, the full story of this good news, right? He says the time is fulfilled. That word time is the word kairos. So in the Bible, there's, there's chronos time, which is logical and linear and progresses. And then there's kairos time, like these interruptions in what we expect. Like an example would be um, 2019 into 2020, like before March, that's chronos time, right? Like things are happening kind of predictably. Your life's kind of unfolding. You're taking jobs. You're getting married. Things are happening like you would predict. And then 2020, we have kairos time. A pandemic breaks out. Everything's different right? This is what Mark is saying. The time is fulfilled. The time is complete. This is the climax. Jesus coming is the climax of a story that's been written since the beginning of time. And the perfect moment, literally just at the right time as the end of Kairos, God introduces this upside down idea of the kingdom of God. And what he means by the time being fulfilled is just simply all of these ancient promises, all of these prophecies, like Jesus didn't make up kingdom, right? Just pull it out of thin air. All of these promises, all of these prophecies given to the Israelite people have now reached their climax in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom that God has promised for thousands of years has now taken on flesh, been born into a human womb, and is now standing before you in the person of Jesus Christ. Now what that means, one of the first things we need to understand is that the gospel is not just a set of belief statements, propositional statements to be uh, studied and analyzed. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus himself. He's saying, I am the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. When you see me, you see God. When you see me, you see justice. When you see me, you see love. When you see me, you see truth. 
He goes on to explain what that means. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. That word kingdom is the word basileia. And it just simply means the reign and the rule of God. God's reign and his rule. As one author says, it's the range of God's effective will. It's the Lord's prayer where God's kingdom has come, where his will is done, where his new government is fully obeyed, fully implemented. This is the range of God's effective will in the world. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come into the world through Jesus, and it's going to begin to take over more and more, not only the hearts of men and women, but also the, our, our social world, our political world. Like this kingdom is, is moving, and it's hidden, and it's small, and it doesn't seem like it's at work, but God says in Jesus it's actually at work subverting the principalities and the powers and the normal structures and the ways that things are being done. Now, I wish I had time to give you a biblical theology of the kingdom because it's a really fascinating story and I think it's worth exploring another time. But let me just give you kind of a quick little summary of when Jesus says kingdom, what he's referring to. See, God the king in Genesis chapter one, back at the very beginning of the creation of the human race, God the king of the world creates human beings imago Dei. He creates human beings in his image to be like him, to possess royal blood, to have dignity and value and worth, which was a radically subversive statement in a world, in the ancient Mesopotamian world, where people were basically viewed as slaves of the gods. And into that narrative, Moses says, God in the beginning creates human beings in the image of God, and he gives them a task. He says, I want you to like me, be like me, I want you to have dominion over the earth. That word dominion is the same word for rule and reign. You are called to rule and to reign and to extend my rule and reign, my benevolent world. This, what you're experiencing here in the Garden of Eden, I want you to extend out to the entire world and take dominion and rule and reign with me. And we know that the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 3, humans rebel and they try to establish their own self-governance apart from God. And it unleashes the curse of sin and chaos and anarchy and injustice into the world. And they're expelled from this garden kingdom. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises that one day he's going to send the true king into the world to crush this rebellion and to heal and rescue them from evil and sin. And what we see worked out in the rest of the story of God's people is these failed attempts for them to establish their own kingdoms apart from God. So we have the kingdom of Egypt, which becomes kind of an embodiment of anti-God injustice and idolatry, right? And Israel, become, they become slaves. And then God liberates them and he rescues them and he brings them out of their evil and their sin. And he establishes them as a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And then they have a series of kings who instead of ruling and reigning with God, choose to rule and reign according to their own desires. And they, they misuse the power that God's given them as image bearers. And so we have time and time again, failed attempts at co-ruling co-reigning with God, and it eventually culminates at the end of the Old Testament with God's people going into exile. God sends them into judgment. He exiles them out to Babylon. They get exiled out to Assyria, and the temple gets completely destroyed, which the temple was kind of the, the representative place where heaven and earth came together, where God's presence and his power was, was present with his people. And so God's presence in Ezekiel leaves Israel, and that's how we end essentially the Old Testament with this longing and this mourning and this lamenting for a true king to come. And we have the prophets who say, but God's not done with you yet. We have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Amos. And they say, one day God's going to send 
the true Messiah. He's going to send the true Prince of Peace, the true King into the world to rescue you and to bring God's presence and power back to you. You don't go to heaven. He says, I'm going to bring my kingdom to this earth through my Messiah. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, it is an answer to those ancient longings, to those promises that God made thousands and thousands of year, years ago. This is the story that we're caught up in, the kingdom of God. This is what we long for, a kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness and human flourishing. Jesus is saying all those longings that you have are now fulfilled in me. And it's a surprise, right? Like nobody expects Jesus to come the way that he does. Jesus has always been a surprise, and he's still a surprise to us. It wasn't like they were like, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense. No, they, they didn't get it either. He was, he was an enigma to them, right? Like Jesus didn't fit their categories, he didn't fit the categories of right and left, progressive and conservative. He transcended and broke down all of these crazy categories, even in, in uh, the early Roman Empire. He, he didn't fit an ideology. He didn't fit in with the Pharisees, kind of the holiness movement. He didn't fit in with the zealots, the political activists of their day. He didn't fit in with the uh, Sadducees. You know, like Jesus didn't, didn't fit in any of these categories. He was surprising. The way that he ran his kingdom, the, the kind of kingdom he brought, was a surprise. He was a surprising king, right? He redefines the idea of kingship, right? In the ancient world, I mean, we, we don't live, we live in a democracy, we don't live in a monarchy. In ancient monarchies, the idea of kingship was tied to power and violence and dominance, right? So Jesus says, my kingdom is not going to be one rooted in a strong military and political violence, using power to dominate and coerce and subjugate. He says, my kingdom is going to be one of agape love. He shifts the idea of kingship from violent power to the power of what the New Testament writers call agape love. This kingdom of agape love suffers for its enemies. It doesn't seek to destroy and punish and lash out. It dies for its enemies, right? It's a, it's a king, he's a king who sacrifices himself, who empties himself of control and prerogative and agenda and autonomy. And ultimately, rather than inflicting violence on others, he absorbs the violence of evil powers in order to break the power of evil that's present in our fractured souls and present in our fragmented societies. Jesus comes not like Caesar. Jesus doesn't come as a Republican. Jesus doesn't come as a Democrat. Jesus breaks all of those categories. And he brings a surprising kingdom, a kingdom that's upside down, that takes everything that the world says is normal and good and right and beautiful, and he does this. It's a very Christopher Nolan thing to do, right? He just bends all of it and says, no, this is actually flourishing. You've been living and thinking this is flourishing, right? The strong conquering the weak, the rich exploiting the poor. He says, in my kingdom, all of this is now reversed. Those who thought, who were thought to be outsiders, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the marginalized, he says, now they're invited to party with me. That's who Jesus surrounds himself with. And those who thought they were insiders are told that they're far from the kingdom of God. And it's this weird uh, thing, um, theologians call it inaugurated eschatology, where it's now, but not yet. Jesus said, I've come, I'm here, I'm among you. The kingdom has begun, but it's not yet. It's like there's, there's going to be a time, just, just like with Octavian, he wins uh, his victory, and it took two years for him to come back to Rome and begin to implement those changes. Jesus says, you now live between these two times, between these two poles. The axis upon which the world turns 
is not 18th century enlightenment. It's not 15th century. It's not 10th century. It is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now this becomes the axis point for history. And we live between those times, and his kingdom looks different than what everybody expected. It doesn't look like Rome. It doesn't look like Europe. It doesn't look like the United States. It is a completely different thing. And it was shocking. And yet it was so compelling for so many people. This is Jesus' gospel, right? And I realize that many of us, maybe we, we um, that's, that's a lot to take in. So let me just give you like a very couple simple definitions of Jesus' gospel. Because again, if we don't start with Jesus' gospel, we are in danger of ending up with a gospel that Jesus himself didn't preach. And so it's important that we get this right and we clarify what the good news is. So N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says it like this. The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world. In and through Jesus and his death and resurrection, the ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. John Ortberg, uh, in a very much simpler way, says it like this, Jesus' good news, his gospel is simply this, the kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. Our, our definition uh, and how we've talked about this in the past at Soma is very similar. Um, we say the gospel is the good news that God himself has come to rescue us from sin and to renew the world through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news that Jesus preached over and over and over again. And this is the good news that he entrusted to his disciples when he says, go out into the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom until I return. We see Paul and the apostles doing this through the book of Acts. They preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the good news. And it's a surprise because it doesn't, again, fit into our categories. And what I want us to kind of begin to kind of think about together is this surprising good news changes the way that we approach discipleship, right? This surprising good news changes the way that we follow Jesus and where we get off track and we fail to, and we don't, we, we, we live out a different gospel. We're going to live out an insufficient discipleship. And so here's the, here's the truth for all of us is that all of us are believing a gospel. The question is, what gospel are you believing? What gospel are you internalizing and what, what's forming kind of the, the mental framework for you when you think about the good news of Jesus? What kingdom are you living in and for? All of us live for and in kingdoms, the range of our effective wills. We all have a gospel. We all have a vision of the good life that motivates us, that inspires us, that compels us forward. And if we're not careful, again, we can end up internalizing and sharing and living a gospel that Jesus himself did not preach. And there are competing gospels. Yes, even within the church, right? Like the, the secular world, or secularism has a gospel, right? There are all kinds of gospels that are out there. My greatest concern is that we in the church get our gospel right, right? Because we often are split and we often have different, distorted, incomplete gospels that are vying for our attention and our imagination. And they can lead us to some really weird places with our discipleship. Dallas Willard says this, we must do nothing less that engage in a radical rethinking of the Christian concept of salvation. 
what, we present, uh, what you present as the gospel or salvation or eternal life will determine what you present as discipleship. Now, let me be clear. He's not saying we need to rethink orthodoxy. He's not saying we need to deconstruct the gospel that I just presented to you. What he's saying is, over time, this gospel has been manipulated. This gospel has taken on cultural clothing that looks very modern and American and Western. And we need to disenculturate ourselves from that baggage that gets kind of like a barnacle, just like attaches itself to the gospel and then gets fed to us. And then we begin to live out of that as what the good news actually is. And so for the last century, maybe you're not aware of this, but for the last century in America, there's actually been a struggle within the church to define the gospel. Like what is the gospel? We've had what I'd just call a family divorce, right? Like two different parties. And some of you probably grew up in these different movements. Um, what Willard calls gospels of sin management, right? Like a preoccupation with managing either individual sin on the one side and personal moral guilt or uh, structural and systemic sin over here on this side. There's this preoccupation with managing sin rather than focusing on life with God. And I want to just lay out quickly what these are um, because I think it's really helpful. And I, and I say this because I love you. I say this as a pastor to you guys, as one who loves the gospel, who loves the good news, who loves the world that Jesus came to redeem. I don't offer this up to critique you. Maybe you're going to maybe get feathers ruffled. You're going to feel like I'm personally attacked. I'm not attacking anybody. These are just my observations and others' observations as we look at kind of the current landscape and how the church has become so divided and polarized when these things were actually meant to be held together. But I think they've been separated, and I just want to draw our attention so that we can name them and have categories. So when somebody says something, um, you know, like, that doesn't feel like the gospel. Okay, well, let's go back and let's make sure we understand what the gospel is. And let's go back to our definitions. And let's not just react on the basis of what somebody's told us. Let's actually go to the Bible and make sure that we're um, living out the same gospel that Jesus had. So uh, the, here's the two versions, the two stories that I see that I think are just incomplete. They're not wrong. They're just totally wrong. They're incomplete. The first one is what I'll call the personal salvation gospel, right? This is the gospel that uh, really focuses on justification, substitutionary atonement, sacrifice, right? This is, this is Billy Graham's gospel, right? Like I, and, I, and I say this as one who in the 90s came to Indianapolis, heard the gospel from Billy Graham, was deeply impacted at a rally that he held. Some of you guys may have been here at the RCA Dome back in the 90s. This was the gospel when I became a Christian. I did not grow up in the church. I was lost, as lost as you could be and so far from God. And when I was 13 years old, somebody came and shared this gospel with me. This changed my life, right? And so it was really a helpful framework for me. But let me just lay it out. It says something like this. God loves you, but you're a sinner. You're deserving death and hell. And Jesus came and died in your place for your sins. He took your punishment in your place for your sins. And if you want to become a Christian and go to heaven when you die, you need to repent and believe in him. And you'll receive Christ's righteousness for you. And again, you'll go to heaven when you die and have all of your sins forgiven, right? This is, God's got merit up in his bank account and he transfers it into your account. And all you have to do is just believe these truths and you can be saved. And so the primary question there becomes, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven or not? Now, again, I want to acknowledge Jesus dying in our place for our sins is true. Jesus dying in our place for our sins, his, his death on the cross, it is essential to the gospel 
story, right? It gives, I mean, it's so helpful to us as a category, like it gives us a category for dealing with guilt and shame. Our generation does not know how to deal with shame. We do not know how to deal with guilt. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. And we have nowhere to go with it because we have no concept of atonement, right? And so we live in a, in a society that is racked with guilt but doesn't have the means to fix anything, right? And we struggle with our own personal guilt. Many people who place their emphasis on this piece of the gospel story, also have a deep passion to share the good news of Jesus, and I appreciate that. I would not be standing before you as a Christian if somebody had not taken the impetus to come to my house, knock on my door, and share what was essentially the four spiritual laws, if you're familiar with that, with me, right? So I appreciate the passion. Our generation, we're so afraid to share the gospel because it's oppressive, it's colonialism, like we're, we're so afraid to do that, and yet people have been so bold to be able to share this message all over the world. Right? So that's what I appreciate that, the hearts. But I also want to say, this is an incomplete story. Right? It's not so much wrong as it's just missing the larger context. It's missing the larger story. There is a richer story to be told about the gospel, about life with God. Right? There is so much more the Bible has to say about the gospel, about salvation, about eternal life than being forgiven of our sins. Yes, we're forgiven of our sins. Yes, Jesus justifies. It's like, please don't walk away from here saying, Brandon doesn't believe in justification. The church doesn't teach it. No, we believe in that, right? It is forgiveness, but it's more. It's so much more robust. That view of the gospel is guilty of what John Ortberg calls minimum entrance requirements thinking, right? Minimum entrance requirements. What is the minimum I have to do to get into heaven? And let's make sure that everybody checks all those boxes. Now, can you imagine doing that like in your marriage? Like what's the minimum I have to do to keep this husband status thing going on? Like we don't live our lives like that would be crazy, right? Like no, marriage is a covenant and it involves commitment. It involves deep fellowship and sharing and participation, right? Like what's the least that I have to do? I mean, can you imagine those wedding vows? Like what is the least, this person, here's the minimum entrance requirements for marriage that you have to do, husband, you have to do, wife, to stay married to the other person. No, it's a life, it's a commitment. And salvation is more than a transaction. It is a transaction, but it's more than that. It's, a tr it's more than a transfer of marriage. It's about God restoring and transforming all of creation. That's what God's up to in his death, in his life, in his resurrection. It's not about, as Orberg goes on to say, I love this, it's not about getting you into heaven when you die. It is about getting heaven into you. It's about getting heaven into this earth. It's exactly what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. It is so much more than just an arrangement that we trust in to get us into the good place, to quote a popular show, when we die. It is trusting in Jesus himself, the person, in a day-by-day, grace-saturated union with Christ, communion with God, like I'm actually living a life with God that doesn't start when I die, but actually starts at the moment that God regenerates me and saves me and calls me to trust in him. This view of the gospel also can tend to narrow our vision of the world to our own individual personal relationship with God. And this is one of my big concerns for this story of the gospel, is that it's so focused on me and my relationship with God, and it misses the world, right? It misses the social ramifications. It misses the cultural dimensions of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God is here. 
right? The gospels and all that's presented from Jesus's birth to his life, to his healings, to his miracles, to him exercising demons, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension to the right hand of the father to rule and reign. Like all of that is the gospel. All of that is what God is doing in the resurrection and the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of God's new world order of love and justice and peace coming into the world. And we're invited as disciples then into that story. So I want us to see the bigger picture and understand that there is this robust vision of the kingdom of God that we've been invited into. To see our part, to see that invitation as what Jesus came to bring. That's one side. Now, the other side is uh, equally as guilty of reductionism. This is what historically has been called the social gospel or the liberation gospel. And basically the story goes like this. History is a story of a human power struggle between the oppressed and their oppressors. This is very common in our neighborhood, very common, uh, I find, in our broader city. Sin is mostly unjust, structural, and institutional arrangements. Jesus was a political revolutionary who came to liberate the poor and the marginalized from the hierarchy of oppression. He threatened the status quo of the empire, and he was executed as an enemy of the state. Jesus' death inaugurated a new kingdom of justice and love and peace. And our job now as the church is primarily one of sociopolitical activism as we work toward a progressive socialist vision of equality or equity, authenticity, freedom, and autonomy. Now, again, I want to acknowledge there are some really beautiful things at play in this gospel. This gospel started with some guys, primarily one of them, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch in New York City in the early 20th century. And it started because they looked out into the world and they saw what they would call fundamentalists ignoring the evil in the world, ignoring children being exploited, ignoring poverty, ignoring injustice in the world. And they said, that is not right. Jesus came to purchase more. And I appreciate how they engage. They use the word kingdom of God, which is a word I never heard until I was in my 20s, the kingdom of God. They take seriously the biblical emphasis on the Imago Dei, that all people are created with inherent value, dignity, and worth, and are worthy of being treated as such. Human flourishing, they take seriously concepts of justice as not just secular theories, but as biblical themes from start to finish. God is a God of justice. Read the book of Psalms, right? Like they take that seriously. They take reconciliation seriously. They, they talk about systemic and institutional sin. They have a nuanced understanding of institutional sin, which is weird that we have a problem with that because we believe that sin affects everything. Why do we have a problem with systemic injustice? Like we believe that sin impacts all structures, all people everywhere, right? Uh, but they call that out and they attempt to eradicate social evils that terrorize human beings on the margins of society. So I so appreciate that, right? But here's the problem with this gospel. If Jesus' gospel was a political revolution, it was an epic failure. Notice where Jesus starts his ministry, not in Rome. Where does he start? Galilee, where all the political people weren't. He never marches on Rome. He never brings about the kind of revolution that we think of when we think of uh, you know, kind of modern political revolutions. Now, don't get me wrong, his teachings were radical. They were radical and they subverted the empire in so many ways. I mean, many people have argued, both Christian and non-Christian, that the seeds were sown in Jesus' teachings for the end of slavery, for the end of inhumane treatment of children, for the end of the Roman Empire itself and the whole model of violence that was there. But notice that Jesus refused to take on the system 
head-on through violent or coercive political activism. It's not primarily Lutheran faith. Furthermore, in this gospel, um, we have all these false categories and false binaries, the good people and the bad people. And we tend to divide the world up into the evil people, which is basically people not in my tribe, people not me. It's them out there. They're the bad people. I'm the good person. There's a lot of self-righteousness um, that can kind of creep up in this movement. And we can often downplay the role of our own personal sin, our own need to repent, our own need to trust Jesus, our own need to walk with Jesus. That's what happened to Rauschenbusch. They completely redefine all these categories of atonement and discipleship and, uh, and the cross and the resurrection. And it just basically drifts into theological liberalism. And by the end of the 19th century, the 20th century, they are not even believing in Jesus anymore in any substantive and material way. And so the Bible has a lot to say to us about the human condition. It says we are all victims and victimizers. We are all oppressors and oppressed. We are all sinners and sufferers who desperately need someone from outside of us to rescue us from this vicious cycle of injustice and sin. We've said here at Thelma before, uh, before we go out into the world and say, woe is you prophetically, we need to look at ourselves and say, woe is me, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. The fruit of this gospel is oftentimes a, quarter, a sort of cultural rage without any possibility of forgiveness and room change. We find ourselves constantly calling out evil in the world and yet not able to find any sort of meaningful redemption and escape from the perpetual cycles of the oppressed and the oppressors and that cycle where the oppressed become the oppressors and we just are gridlocked into this cultural battle. My time's up. I have a lot to say. Let me just close with this. I, I lay those out to you. Again, there's lots of gospels. There's lots. I could t we could talk about the prosperity gospel. Um, we could talk about all kinds of things that are infecting the church. But these are two of the major ones that I see at play in our community. Again, I'm going to go back to what Willard said. What you present as the gospel is what you're going to present as discipleship. I, I want you to understand that these were never meant to be pulled apart. They're supposed to be together. Our personal salvation and the salvation that God wants to bring about, the renewal of the world, were always meant to be complementary, not bitter rivals competing for the attention and affection of the church. Jesus says, he closes his message by saying these simple words, repent and believe the good news and follow me. That's what he says, repent and believe this good news and follow me. What I want you to take from this, what I want us to take from this in terms of discipleship is that discipleship is about life here and now with Jesus. Follow me into a life. It's not just a pass to get to the next world. It's not just about activism. It is a life to be lived here and now in the kingdom with King Jesus. And that's why Jesus is saying to his people constantly, seek first the kingdom of God. Lay down your other loyalties, your allegiances to yourself, your allegiances to the other kingdoms of this world. You must seek me first and lay down arms, right? Repent just simply means rethink the way that you're looking at life. Rethink everything you think you know about the way the world works. You need to rethink it and you need to rethink it in respect to me. I am now the axis upon which all the world runs. So organize your life around me. Organize your priorities around me. Be politically active, but organize it around me. Preach the gospel, but organize it around me. Serve the poor, but organize it around me. Pray, make sure you organize it around me. Be with me, Jesus says. This is what a disciple is. Be with me, become like me, and do what I did. Do what I would do if I were you, living your life. That's the invitation of Jesus. It's not just about going to heaven 
when we die, it's about the life that Jesus calls us to live right now. And it means that we live in this tension, the already but not yet, the now but the future, the now but the not yet. So don't despair when the world doesn't become as just as you think it should be. Don't lose heart when your efforts at pursuing justice and reconciliation and peace in the world seem to be failing. Because what is hidden and what is small and what is invisible in the kingdom of God, God said, one day I'm going to bring heaven to earth and none of that will be lost. I'm making all things new. None of it will be wasted. So continue, continue to pursue justice. Continue to be active. Continue to preach the gospel. It is not in vain. Don't lose heart. Right? Don't have an over-realized eschatology that forgets that there is a real Satan, that there is a real God, that there is a real heaven and hell that are at war with one another for the souls and the bodies and the systems and the institutions of our world. They don't think it's going to happen in fullness right now through human effort. And then don't be passive. Don't, don't, don't uh, fall guilty to what some people call under-realized eschatology, right? Where we just say, you know what, I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to focus on my personal relationship with God while all the world around me is being ruled by evil and chaos. And that's a real temptation. When you're tired and you're exhausted and you're out engaging the poor and you're out engaging in the battle, it's a real temptation to just go, forget it. I'm just going to go to church, read my Bible, pray, take communion, and just let everything happen. And God says, no, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God, Jesus, is here. He's here with you. He sees your work. He loves you. He has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to keep going. I want to pray for us. And I want to just ask God to continue to do this work in us. And as we come to communion, as we do every week, it's just a reminder that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus has come with this good news. That the kingdom of God has now been made available to ordinary men and women, broken but beloved people created in the image of God for whom Jesus came to make all things new, both for us personally and for the entire world. And so as we come to communion and we take the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus into our bodies, we are reminded that Jesus is with us and he empowers us for this good work in the world. But it starts with us being made new. It starts with us surrendering our little kingdoms to Jesus so that his kingdom can come, so that his will can be done. And so let's just take a moment to confess to him. Let's take a moment to cry out to him. Let's take a moment to pray to him. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're not even a part of the kingdom of Jesus. Maybe you've never trusted him. You're not walking in a daily relationship. Yeah, you're religious or you sometimes pray some prayers, but you don't have an active daily participatory relationship with God. You're not submitting yourself. You're not giving your allegiance to Jesus. And I want to invite you to do that, right? Do that right now. Take communion as a disciple of Jesus, one who's giving yourself to the ways and the works and the teachings and the person of Jesus. And if you already are, then maybe this is just a good opportunity for you to look at and examine the gospel you've believed and maybe how you've allowed some distortions to creep in and how that is leading you to live your discipleship in a way that may not be the full gospel story, the, the whole gospel for the whole person, for the whole church, for the whole world that Jesus has invited us into. So let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Um, our servers are going to come and begin to distribute that. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you don't want to take communion, just let them know as they come by. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to just consider together what it means to be disciples, what it means to receive the good news of the kingdom. Help us to 
resist the temptations to manipulate that or to distort that. But God, help us to see the beauty of you as our king and your kingdom of justice and love and peace and shalom and flourishing that you're bringing into the world. Help us to receive that with joy as good news for us today. We pray in your name. Amen.